Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thanks for joining us again for our online Bible study. For those of you who have been following along with us, you know that through this uh, fall quarter, we've been going through what um, biblical scholars refer to as Paul's prison letters. And so we started off in the book of Philippians, and currently we're in the book of Colossians. And we'll end next week with one lesson in the short um, letter to Philemon that Paul penned. And so today we're looking at the end of chapter 3 of Colossians and the beginning of chapter 4. You know, one of the things we see from time to time in Paul's writings are similarities in letters. And it's been pointed out that the books of Ephesians and Colossians are similar in the way that the first part of the letter is really theological in nature. Of course, all of Paul's writings are connected to theology, but the first part of those books really have to do with Paul trying to communicate and make sure that the readers of these letters would understand some deep theological truths. And then the back half of these letters seem to be more practical in nature. It's sort of Paul answering the so what question. We need to believe these truths. If we do believe them, then what kind of difference will that make in our lives? How will our lives reflect those things. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how these theological truths reflect in our relationships at home and even in our prayer life. So looking forward to our time together today. Let's say a word of prayer as we begin. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved these things. And we know that the reason that they have been preserved is because they are your word and they are your revelation of yourself to us as your people, that we may know you, that we may know truth, and that truth may change our lives and transform us. And so, Lord, as we study your word uh, together now, we pray that the uh, that your spirit would take these truths and use them in our lives to make us more like Christ, to make us um, focus more on uh, things of, of yours, the things of God, and less about the things of the world. And so thank you. Bless our time together as we study your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, in that the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, there's a big transitional word in verse 1 where it says, Therefore, as a result, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, we know that what Paul is talking about here is for sure a lifelong pursuit. You know, it's not as if once we're saved by Christ, we're saved by faith in Christ alone, um, that all of a sudden, miraculously, Every single thing in our life 
is transformed perfectly into the image of Christ. We know that we're justified totally, that we're totally saved at that moment of conversion. And yet at the same time, there's this process that we embark on that's that lasts the rest of our life. We call that the process of sanctification, the process of being made into the image of Christ in this ongoing way. And so Paul encourages these believers here in that process. He says, keep on seeking the things that are above. Now, there's sort of this this buzzword that's gone around in evangelical circles now for a few years called gospel-centeredness. And I think this idea is helpful as long as we understand what it really means. I think when we talk about gospel-centeredness, what we mean is having the kind of life where the gospel and the implications of that gospel message is at the core of everything that we do. It's sort of a response to a kind of life that would be lived in this way. Well, over here, I have my family life. And then in another segment of my life is my work life. And another segment of my life is my life with my friends and pleasure and leisure. And over here in this other segment is my church life and my spiritual life. The scriptures in the New Testament has uh, no concept of that. Um, Biblically, when we come to faith in Christ, it is understood that those implications impact every area of our lives. So that really what we're left with, instead of this sort of ice cube tray where with all the different segments or this waffle kind of life where everything is segmented and doesn't touch one another, we're left with this idea where it's more of like a wheel where at the hub is the gospel in our spiritual walk. And then everything else is sort of a spoke off of that center, central hub. And our life is reflective of all of those gospel implications in every area of our life. And so I really think in this chapter, in chapter three, that's really what Paul is getting to, is what does it look like if our lives are really focused around the central truths of who Christ is and what he's done on the cross um, on our behalf. And so as a result of that, if you skip down to verse 17, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there it is, right? Whatever we're doing, it should be impacted by who is Christ, what has he done in my life, and what are the implications of that? And so uh, our, our passage today is uh, Colossians three eighteen through chapter 4, verse um, 4. And so let's read starting in verse 18 together. It says this, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, 
love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And so at this point, Paul makes this transition and says, we have to be the type of believers and Christians that put these truths into practice in the most familiar places that we find ourselves. So you can see here in the passages that we read that what Paul has in mind is really these relationships that take place in the context of the Christian home and how they're to be lived out and how they're to play out. Here's what I want um, to point uh, point out and bring to your attention as we talk through these things. Look at how many times Paul refers to these relationships in connection with our relationship to God. Verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Verse 22, do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, right? Verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So these relationships, what Paul is teaching us is that these relationships are not happening in a vacuum, our sole focus in living out, uh, um, living within these relationships is not in and of itself for that relationship. Paul is connecting these relationships in our home with our relationship with the Lord. And in order to understand these truths, we have to make that connection. These relationships in our homes are directly connected and affected by our relationship with the Lord. There's an author that I like to read as it relates to marriage and family. His name is Paul Tripp. But one of the things he says in this regard is that the best way to be a great spouse is to be a devoted follower of Christ. The best way to be a great parent is to be a great follower of Christ. The best way to be a great employer or employee is to be a great follower of Christ because it's in our discipleship with Jesus that 
the the changes in our life happen that directly impact our ability to relate to those around us. And so Paul points that out here. This is for the Lord. These relationships are for Christ, and we are to do them with that type of mindset that they are done for pleasing the Lord. We know in other passages of Scripture, specifically in the book of Galatians, Paul says, we're not here to please men. We're not here. We're not servants of men. We're servants of Christ. And so Paul uses that language here by saying, when we live out relationships in the home in this kind of way, we are pleasing God. God is pleased by that, and we're being faithful to his call in our lives. So with that in mind, look at verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, of course, this is very countercultural, right? Uh, in, in other places, Paul would say, wives, submit to your husbands. And that word and that terminology maybe for us kind of um, is, is um, surprising. Why, why can Paul and how can Paul use this kind of language? And I think what we, we have to start by saying what Paul is not communicating here. What Paul is for sure not communicating is that women are not equal to men, that in some way they're inferior, and as a result, they are subject to their husbands. Um, we know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul uses this idea of headship, and he says that husbands are the head of their wives, but then he also says that God, the Father, is the head of Christ. Okay, so let's take a step back. We know that the orthodox view of the Trinity is that Jesus is as much God as the Father. And so if the Father is the head of the Son, what that cannot mean is that the Son is in some way inferior to the Father, or less, we don't have a trinity, right? We have something less than God in Christ. And so we know that Jesus is fully God, the Father is fully God, but in the in the relationship, if you will, within the Trinity, there is this order. There is this submissive nature that Christ takes on as the second person of the Trinity. And so when we talk about wives submitting themselves to the husbands and Paul laying this out here in Colossians, just as he does in the book of Ephesians, what we see is Paul is wanting and and showing us that these relationships that we live out, they are to reflect a deeper spiritual reality that as wives submit and are subject to their husbands, why is it that that's fitting to the Lord or that's pleasing to the Lord? Because in doing so, they are reflecting the nature of the church to Christ. In, in Ephesians 5, Paul points this out clearly. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as the church submits 
itself to Christ. And so that's why it's fitting because in our relationships, we are illustrating in this order the gospel and how this church submits to its head, which is Christ. As a result, Paul says, wives submit to your husbands because it's fitting to the Lord. Now, husbands are for sure not off the hook. Verse 19 says the way husbands reflect this reality is by loving your wives. Now, we know that uh, the English word love is a complicated word. Uh, Some have said that uh, those who live in Alaska have 600 words for our English word ice. To us, it's just ice. But if you live in Alaska, there's different kinds of ice. It sounds like about 600 different kinds. Well, this word love in English is similar because biblically, and especially in the Greek language, love is not just love. There are different kinds of love. Right There's the phileo love. We know the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, that we have a kind of friendship love that exists within our relationships. We also have um, the uh, biblical word eros. Um, that's the, the sexual intimacy kind of love. Here, um, Paul is not using either one of those terms. He's using the word agape, which of course is that self-sacrificial love. It's the love that we see on display specifically at the cross when Jesus laid down his life. He sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. And so when Paul says here, husbands, love your wives, that's what he's referring to. Lay down your lives with self-sacrificial kind of love for your wife. And so you see the correlation as wives take on the role of the church in the relationship. Husbands take on the role of Christ in the relationship. And when we do this, a beautiful picture is sent out to our neighbors, to our community, to our culture, to our children, that in us fulfilling these roles within marriage that are God-given and God-ordained, we reflect the truths of the gospel and we put them on display. And so Paul says, this is why we should do this. These these roles are pleasing to God. But then he continues in verse 20, talking about children. And it's interesting here because Paul addresses the children specifically. There are other passages of Scripture, uh, specifically in the Old Testament, where fathers are instructed to tell their children these things. But here it seems as if Paul is speaking directly to the children. And so most likely it's children that can read the letter. And he's expecting that there are some children who will read it. And so he addresses them specifically. So you're probably uh, thinking here, these are teenagers. These are uh, youths who are able to read. And Paul says, children, 
Be obedient to your parents in all things. Why? Because your parents are perfect? No. Why? Because your parents deserve your obedience in and of themselves? No. Children, obey your parents. Why? Because in doing so, you get to play a part in reflecting the gospel as well, which is that as followers of Christ, we are called his children. And in our obedience to our heavenly father, we are showing our submission and our humility and our trust that he loves us and cares for us. So I think what Paul wants children to understand here is that when you are tempted to disobey, the main reason that you should deny yourselves in those points is not just because your parents told you to do something, but it's because in doing so, you get to reflect an incredible gospel truth that God's children trust Him, submit to Him, and obey His authority because we know that He loves us and cares for us. And His precepts and His uh, instructions to us are good and are righteous and help us not harm us. And so Paul says, as a result of that, children, obey your parents. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. Then he talks to fathers here, the leaders of the home, the ones who should be the most intentional in teaching and instructing and disciplining the children. He says, fathers, do not exacerbate your children so that they will lose heart. I believe what Paul is referring to here is in our discipline. Right, that fathers, as uh, our roles in the home, one of our roles in the home is to make sure and to to train up, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Spiritually, we are to be disciplining them. At the same time, we must ensure that we do not come across as some tyrants in the home, as some dictators in the home, but that our children have a need to understand that our discipline flows out of our love for them. Once again, we go back to what is Paul trying to illustrate or trying to help us understand that's illustrated in the home, that God loves his children. And because he loves us, the scripture's clear, he does discipline us. That's not intended to push us away. That's not intended to drive a wedge within our relationship with the Lord. Instead, it's intended to bring us to repentance and restoration with our relationship with Him. So with that in mind, Paul says, fathers, be careful how you discipline. Make sure that in even in the midst of discipline, you are attempting to have a deep relationship and connection with your children or else 
they will lose heart. So fathers, be aware of our role in illustrating these truths within the context of the home as well. Okay, now Paul transitions to this idea of slavery. And we know for sure that in the Roman Empire, slavery was a given. There are estimates and who knows what the reality was, but there were for sure millions of slaves that existed in this context. And so there's been some debate and talk, especially in recent days, about, well, Paul here is um, encouraging slavery and all of those things. I think, and um, I think Paul here is simply referring to a given reality within the cultural context. Uh, at the same time, he's not endorsing slavery in any way. So he says to the slaves, which of course would be part of these homes, he says, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Look at this. Not with the external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, we know that in the Roman um, Empire, there were different kinds of slaves. Probably the most common kind of slave were those slaves who, as a benefit for their service, if you will, in the home and around the home, they were treated as sort of like a family member. Um, Of course, back then, there was no social security. There were no programs to help those who couldn't help themselves. And so this was a widespread kind of a thing that happened. And so what Paul says here is that slaves in their service to their masters on earth can reflect the kind of service that we are as Christians to have to the Lord. And he says it with sincerity of heart. And I think this says more about our Christian service to the Lord than it really does about slavery or what Paul was speaking to uh, for these slaves specifically. I think what Paul is saying here is that when we serve the Lord as our master, we know that what the Lord doesn't do is a look only at our outward actions. We know biblically, the, the scriptures say, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In our service to the Lord, if we are not doing it with sincerity at the level of the heart, then it's all for naught. Right? It's the Lord is seeking those whose hearts are directed toward him. And now, of course, that's the problem that Jesus pointed out time and come again with the Pharisees. They have these outward um, expressions and these outward sort of actions that if you didn't see their heart, you would think these are people who are very pious. These are people who are very devoted. And what Jesus said to them is they were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they were all clean and pristine. And yet at the level of the heart, they were hypocrites. There was not sincerity 
there. And so Paul says to Christians, and specifically here to those who find themselves as slaves in the homes of other people, that as we serve our masters with sincerity of heart, we're reminded to serve our Lord as our master with sincerity, with obedience at the level of the heart. And then he sums it up in verse 23, a great passage of scripture to memorize, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. I mean, this can, uh, the, the application of this verse is wide ranging, right? I mean, Paul is literally saying, whatever part of your life you're thinking about, do it for the Lord. Whether it's the relationships in the home, whether it's your job, whether it's your pleasure, whatever. I mean, Paul is literally saying, whatever you find yourselves doing, think about how you can do it for the Lord, because our lives are intended to be centered around these truths, and these truths are intended to impact every part of our lives. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 1, he refers back to the masters. He says, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Why? Because they deserve it? Not necessarily, he says. Instead, knowing that you too have a master in heaven, we know that the Lord grants us justice and gives us um, this opportunity to walk in love and in relationship with him, not as a mean master uh, who lords it over us, but as a master who cares for us. And I think that's what Paul is saying here, that those who find themselves as masters over others should reflect God's character in their relationship with those who are under them. Now, in verse 2 here, when Paul makes a pretty hard transition, but he talks about this idea of prayer. Let's read verses 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. How we live our lives in our homes is a mark of true Christian life. Charles Spurgeon said it like this as it relates to prayer. He says, the most clear mark that a person is a true follower of Christ is their attitude in prayer. So Paul points both of these things out. How we live our lives and these close relationships are a mark of our Christianity and how we pray. Verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. I mean, what is it in our lives that we are devoted to? I mean, that's sort of a 
a loaded term, devotion. Right? We say we have our daily devotions. And for some of us, that's a deep and intimate time with the Lord that we grow in our walk with Him. We read His Word. We spend time in prayer. For others of us, maybe our devotion, our devotional time is a five-minute check off the box so we can go on with the rest of our lives. Isn't that ironic that we call that devotion? And so what Paul is pointing out here is that we should have this deep intentionality, if you will, toward prayer. We are devoted to it. We are fanatics for it, if you will. We are uh, we have this deep intention as it relates to prayer, he says. And so this is a good time for us to reflect. It cannot be said that we are intentional in prayer. Do we have quality prayer? Do we have times of quantity um, prayer time? What does that look like? Could it be said that we're devoted um, to prayer? And then he says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I mean, here we are the Sunday before the holiday that we set aside for Thanksgiving. And in God's sovereignty, we have this passage of Scripture that says one of the marks of a growing and a devoted prayer life is that our prayers are filled with an attitude of thanksgiving. Some people think of prayer as asking God for things. And certainly there is a part of prayer where we are called to do that. Remember back in our study, the book of Philippians, he says, be anxious for nothing, but um, with prayer, um, present your request to the Lord. And so certainly part of prayer is making our requests to the Lord and asking God for help. But by and large, our prayers should be filled with an attitude of thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but one of the things that's helpful for me practically in this is to actually keep a prayer list or a prayer journal because it's interesting when I do that and I flip back at what I was praying for yesterday or last week or last month, I can see how God has answered those prayers. And it's an opportunity for me to thank God and say, Lord, I was praying for that person or, or that situation or this um, part of my life that I needed your help in. And I see how you've answered that prayer. And I want to take time to stop and thank you for those things. And of course, we can thank God for lots of things, our salvation, uh, the, all the blessings that He provides, how He provides for our needs. And so some of us will do that this week as we think about this holiday of Thanksgiving. But what would it look like for our prayer life to be marked by an attitude of thanksgiving. That's what Paul is directing us to. And then Paul goes to the specific uh, specifics as we end here in verses three and four. He says, praying at the same time for us. 
So Paul requests that these people would pray for him, but look at his request that God will open up to us a door for the word. It has been said, I think it's true, Paul never got over what happened to him on that road to Damascus. When Christ called him to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles, that was the mission for Paul and his life. And sort of like a Navy SEAL is so focused on the mission at hand, they are mission-oriented. Whatever the mission is, that's what they're going to do. Paul was the same way. Remember, at this point, Paul is in a Roman jail, and he doesn't request that they would pray that he would get out of jail. He doesn't request that, that God would give him the money and the resources that he needed. Paul says, we ask you to continue to pray that God would open up another door for us to go and share the word when he goes on to say what that word is at the end of verse three, speaking forth the mystery of Christ. This mystery that had been revealed that Christ came to save Jews and Gentiles. He came to save all those who would put their faith and trust in him. And so Paul is focused on the mission. And I wonder for us, even as it relates to our prayer life, don't hear the wrong thing. It's not a bad thing to pray for our sick friends. It's not a bad thing to, to pray that God would meet our needs. At the same time, what does it say about our orientation to the mission of Christ in our lives? If we neglect to pray for God, open up doors for me to share the gospel. God, would you open up opportunities for me to to serve others in the name of Christ? God, would you open up for me these um, opportunities to do what you've called me to do as your ambassador, as your witness, as a follower of Christ? That was Paul's focus. Verse 4, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak that he would have clarity in presenting these gospel truths, he knew that's why God had put him here. And so, brothers and sisters, as we end this study in the book of Colossians, it's very important for us to understand, yes, we should know and seek and continue to learn deep theological truths. However, if those theological truths never make a difference in our lives, if they do not transform our relationships, our prayer life, our devotion to the mission of Christ in our lives, then they're worthless. And so Paul here is making that connection. Know the truth. The first part of the book of Colossians, Jesus is supreme over all things. Know that, believe that. When we believe that, here are the outflows of that. Our relationships in our home are different. They reflect those truths. Our prayer life reflects 
those truths and our attitude toward the mission of Christ in our lives reflect those truths. May all of our life reflect these truths of the gospel message for the glory of God.